Well, it's hard to hear a passage about persecution and not think about what's happening in Afghanistan and with the Christians in Afghanistan right now, even just moments, uh, days after, you know, um, things started to disintegrate. Um, we were hearing reports that death threats were coming to Christians in Afghanistan and that, um, you know, it was just nearly impossible for them to hide because they're being required to go to prayer five times a day. And so um, if they're not there, then people will, will, will know why. And um, so it's, it's a challenging kind of time. And when we read a passage like this in First Peter, we should probably understand that the kind of context into which Peter was writing is very similar to what we might be thinking about as happening uh, there in Afghanistan um, with the church. And I find it to be a, a bit of a miracle, isn't it, that there is a church in Afghanistan that we can be talking about it when you, when you hear about the kind of uh, oppression that that church has experienced and its powerful testimony you know, to the work of God in his community and to the resiliency of the church. And I want to invite us to be praying for the church in Afghanistan. We're hopefully already praying for those who are vulnerable, women and others uh, in Afghanistan. I want to invite us to be praying also for the church in Afghanistan uh, in this coming season. And when we hear stories, if you've grown up in the church, you've been around the church for a long time, you know, maybe you've heard stories like this, and at times you've been tempted to feel a little bit guilty about the fact that here in the West, we face so little persecution, relatively speaking. And, you know, you might, you might wonder what to do with that. And I think the Bible's very clear. We're not to wish for or pursue persecution uh, but as Peter is telling us in this passage, we're to be ready for it. We're, we're not to be surprised for it. And that, that's, that's what Peter's saying, and we're going to explore that a little bit together. Now, I do want to kind of wrestle with this concept of persecution in the West, though, in our context. Because while we're not facing persecution, I do think it's probably true that we're experiencing some pressure, maybe you would say. Uh, and that that pressure is increasing over the last season. Um, the church, you know, if you want to call the evangelical or the orthodox or, you know, biblical um, Protestant church uh, in this season is being critiqued, being criticized, uh, being judged. Um, the word that we sometimes now use if you're on social media uh, if you're podcasting or watching Twitter, it's being deconstructed, right, in some sense. And this is happening both from without and from within. And so there is a kind of a pressure, and I'm guessing that some of you are feeling this kind of pressure. Um, the church is being questioned or um, scrutinized with respect to our beliefs and our actions, not just um, now, but historically. Uh, and that process is sort of ongoing. Uh, how have we interacted with gender, with politics, with sexuality, with race, with now leadership 
you know, those of you who are watching or listening to the Mars Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, some of you listening to that, um, we should debrief, you know, after, after service. Um, there's just a lot there and it's sort of coming on you in some senses and it's a little bit, it's a little bit overwhelming at times. I'm imagining, I know that I feel that. Yesterday I just had to sit in my side yard and just sit in a chair for about an hour and just sort of absorb, you know, everything that's going on in our world right now. It's, it's, it's kind of intense and it's messy. And this is the way it is with fiery trials. They're messy. Some of the critiques of the church uh, are fair, right? And that's one of the things that we see in the fiery trial. One of the benefits is that the church gets refined. And that's a good thing. We need for the church to be aligned with God's will. And for that to take place, sometimes there needs to be some heavy critique and some refinement process. Uh, sometimes the critiques um, are, are not fair. So in Peter's day, the pagans would say of the Christians, well, we don't like them because they're atheists. Now, why would they say that? Because the Christians refused to worship physical idols. So they're like, you don't have any God. Right? But that's not true at all. So sometimes the critiques, and maybe there are ways in which we're experiencing that right now, the critiques are inaccurate or unfair. Sometimes the critiques are aligned with Scripture, like, like you're not being loving in the way that Jesus taught, right? Yeah. And sometimes the critiques are not aligned. So back in, again, Peter's day, one of the critiques would be of the church is that you don't bow down to the emperor, well, there was a reason that the church didn't bow down to the emperor because scripture forbid it. So it's messy when a fiery trial comes, when there's a time of, of persecution or judgment or just even kind of what we're experiencing, I would frame more as not persecution, but pressure. It's messy. And the criticism or the critique or the, 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 the way that we're processing and understanding, it comes in different directions and in different ways. And I, I, I'm sure that as Peter is writing, you know, the people that are experiencing, they're confused. They're trying to make sense out of everything that's happening. Some of it's really obvious and clear. Some of it's confusing. And they're, they're just trying to make sense of it. And add to that in our day that there's so much diversity within the Western church. Diversity of approach and you know, we've got these core things that we hang on to that hold us together as Christian, the Christian faith. And then within that, there's all kinds of diversity and difference, both in, in the way that we hold it and the way that we, we live it out. How many of you have had the experience where you're standing around the water cooler? Remember that when you used to go into work and stand around the water cooler? And you found yourself having to answer for things that Christians did somewhere else. Right? Have you had that experience? I know you have because you've told me, some of you, that you've had that experience. Um, so, so that adds to the, to the muddle and the confusion as well. So if this morning or over this season, you're sort of taking all this in, and it's, it's a bit overwhelming for you, then I just want to affirm, first of all, that that's normal. 
And that in fact, this season that we're in fits into God's larger framework for his sovereign um, lordship over the world. And that's what Peter is going to help us to understand. Because not only does he say, don't be surprised by it. In fact, what he says is, is he kind of takes it to the next level. He actually is going to make this incredible statement, which, which Jim read. He actually says, rejoice in the midst of it. Now, how could Peter call people who are not just experiencing pressure, but actual physical persecution to rejoice in the midst of what they're experiencing? And he says some other wonderful things like, like don't be ashamed in the midst of it. We read that. And ultimately, and this is the, the, the phrase that I'm using to kind of, you know, capture this whole passage, is be steadfast in the midst of it. Be steadfast in the midst of the pressure or the persecution or however you want to frame it. So how do you remain steadfast amidst persecution or even just the pressure that the church is, church is currently experiencing? We're going to explore this under two headings. What is a fiery trial? And how do you go through it? And I just want to remind you, this is now the last week in our series on First Peter. Um, let's put up the topics that we've gone through. This is how you live on mission, according to, first, to, according to Peter. Be hopeful, be holy, be together. Community is really important. Be subject to the Lord, ultimately. Be fearless. Pastor Paul took us through that last week. Thank you, Pastor Paul. First sermon. Knocked it out of the park. We're grateful. Thank you. And then be steadfast. Be steadfast. And that's what we're looking at today. What does it mean to be steadfast? I love this text. There's so much in here that I think is really going to help us. So let's dive in. What is a fiery trial? That's the first thing we're going to talk about. Let's talk about fiery trials. Perhaps you came to faith in Christ. Um, and by the way, if you're visiting or you're exploring the things of the faith, like the very center of who we are and what we're about is having a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, that's where it all begins. And so as we're talking through these things and reading the scripture, I just want to kind of bookmark in your mind this, this idea that ultimately where you really want to come to grapple and understand is who is Jesus and who is he to you? And, and the way that the way that we respond to what God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ as articulated in the scriptures is by faith. And so we have to ask questions and try to understand and figure it out so we can get to the place, are we going to respond in faith to Jesus Christ? That's, that's the essence of Christianity, um, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And so as we talk about all these things, the starting place is right there. And, and I want to make sure that's really clear in your mind. Um, but let's just say you, you did come to faith in Jesus Christ and you thought, oh, wow, this is so great. Now my life is going to be perfect and easy from here on out, right? Um, I've got faith in Jesus, uh, and so everything's going to be good. And now this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, it's like, it's like the fine print, you know, at the bottom of some big purchase that you've made that you didn't realize was there. Like, oh, wait, this is part of it too? Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes on you. So how does a fiery trial fit into God's grand sovereign 
plan for the world? That's the first question we, we really need to grapple with. Uh, and then we'll get into more of the application things um, at the end. And he does say, don't be surprised. So I, I take from that that there must be some purpose for these fiery trials. There must be some purpose. And, and what's interesting too, even to take it a step further, not only um, does he say, don't be surprised, but if you were paying attention as we were reading through that, you notice that the fiery trial um, starts with the household of God. It starts with the household of God, verse 17. And that's the same word that's used in chapter 2. Remember back in our third sermon, we were talking about being together, and we talked about how the temple is is from from the Old Testament um, is is now kind of a metaphor for the church. And so, you know, here you had the temple and that was where God dwelled. And now in the New Testament, you have the household of God, which is the same word, but now it's referring to the people of God. So we've gone from a physical building to a community of people. And that beautiful, um, that beautiful way that Peter has of describing it, that each one of us, and you know, this is why the commissioning is so important, these things that we do, each one of us is like a living stone making that temple. So rather than dead, cold stones in the old temple, now we have living stones. But here's the thing. Just as in the Old Testament, the fiery trial, the, the, the judgment starts at the temple. Now it starts, the writers of the New Testament understand, with the people of God. It starts with the people of God. So, so how exactly does that make sense that judgment begins with the house of God, household of God? Because isn't it the point, and I already kind of shared this, isn't the point that with Jesus you're spared from that judgment because he's atoned for your sin? How do you, how do you put all that together here? Did Peter forget the gospel all of a sudden? Well, I think the answer, the best solution is in the way that we use words and how sometimes they're nested one inside of another. Some of the, some of the terms that we use have a very focused meaning and then they can have a larger meaning. And the word judgment can refer to that inward determination that something is wrong or it can be that plus the outward action of doing something about it. And that's what Peter seems to be using this word judgment as in this particular context. So just to give a silly example, I can judge my driveway to be messy. We have a pine tree out there, and so most of the time my driveway is really messy, and I just walk by it and don't do anything about it. But I could judge it to be messy, and then I could pull out the hose, which I wouldn't do because we're in a drought, um, but I could pull out the hose and flood it right? Judgment, flood, flood it and get every, all the debris and everything off the driveway. And that's a kind of a judgment as well. So there's the inner kind of piece of it, but then there's the inner plus the outer action. And that's what Peter is referring to in this context when he uses the word judgment. Now, actually, Jesus has an even better metaphor than my driveway, no surprise, uh, for talking about this. And um, Marilyn read the passage from Matthew 13 this morning that gives us a concept here that helps us to understand this, this judgment idea. It talks about the wheat and the tares. Um, the wheat is what you want to keep growing in your field. The tares, that's another word for weeds, basically, things that you don't want to keep. And the wheat and the tares grow up together in the same field. 
And what Jesus says when he tells this parable is that, you know, the, that, that they're cut together. And if you, if you like, that's the judgment. They're cut together. That's the fiery trial, that the wheat and the tares are cut together. But then, as the parable alludes to, and, and everybody listening to this parable would have understand the, understood these dynamics very clearly, um, that what happens after that is, is that, that that combination of wheat and tares and whatever else is then threshed on the floor. So it's trampled on so that the seeds are broken out. And I, I'm, this is not something I've done, so I probably am not quite getting exactly right. But there, it's threshed, and then it's winnowed. It's, that means it's thrown up in the air so that the light debris that you don't want is, is blown away and the heavy stuff. And then it's finally sifted so that you get... So at the end of the day, you locate the seed... Out of the combination of everything. So the, it's like the judgment comes on the, the whole, right? And, and everybody experiences it. But then the, this, the wheat is pulled out. And then out of that wheat, a delicious and wonderful bread is made. If you like the new heaven and the new earth, right? Because, because that, what, that which is pre- precious has been redeemed in the process. So when Peter talks about this judgment coming, that's, that's it. It's not to condemn the person who's already been freed in Jesus Christ, but it is to say that there will be a catching up in this process. And, and isn't this something that we experience in our world fairly regularly? This, this maybe sounds strange, and yet it's not strange. So if you're to rebuild, remodel a house, you have to go in and tear down, you know, what's there oftentimes. And, and within that material, there's a lot of good material in that that gets destroyed in the process. Maybe you pull it out, you know. We're having all these massive fires. Why are we having these massive fires? Well, one of the reasons we're having these massive fires is because we haven't allowed the smaller fires to come through and take care of, of the foliage and get rid of what's unnecessary and not allow it to grow too big. And when that happens, when the smaller fires come in, then it, it allows the new green shoots to come out, right? And, and when, you don't, when you prevent that from happening, which has been what we've, we've done for a long period of time, you end up with these, part of the reason, I'm sure it's more complex than this, part of the reason is you end up with these, these raging fires because, because there haven't been those seasons of, of judgment, if you like, or renewal, you know, that, that leads to this healthier kind of moment. So we see this in nature. We see it in our own lives. You could probably come up with many different examples. There are seasons. The biblical story of history is that these seasons of judgment and destruction come, and they will bring renewal. They'll bring fresh shoots. They'll bring what we ultimately want. And one of these days, there's lots of seasons. You see them throughout the Old Testament. And then, you know, uh, we probably experience them in small and large ways. And, uh, you know, maybe this is a season that is surprising us because we haven't experienced it before. But one day, one of these seasons will be the final judgment. Now, is this it? I don't know. And Jesus says, you know, you won't know the day, but be ready for it. 
And that season will give birth finally to the new heaven and the new earth in which all the causes of sin have been rooted out where there's no more sadness or crying or tears anymore. And just a little sidebar, remember, we've talked about this quite a bit, but we're, we're not talking about some, you know, on a cloud playing a harp when we talk about the new heaven and new earth, which, you know, when you were a little kid, you thought, oh my goodness, I don't want to die because that sounds really boring. We're talking about this gorgeous, incredible, beautiful, amazing world filled with incredible image bearers functioning without any sin in it, without any decay, without any of the things that, that create harm, right? That's the new heaven and the new earth. And one of these days, the season of judgment, the final one, will result, will give birth to that fresh bread, that incredible, I don't even want to say place because it seems too small. Existence. That's what it'll give birth to. And so, as painful as these seasons can be, um, they're part of God's sovereign work in the world to bring us to where we want to go. That's how it works. And it starts with the people of God. doesn't mean it's going to end there only, and we'll, we'll kind of get into that in a minute. But it starts with the new temple. All right. That's the first question. So, so this whole idea of the fiery trial fits into God's sovereign plan of redeeming. How do you go through then the fiery trial? So if it's a reality of God's, the way God works in the world, how do you go through the fiery trial? And, and that's what we'll, we'll spend the rest of our time on. And I've got several different things that come out of this text to say about this. The first one is don't make it worse with your own sin. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Right? So I have a complicated relationship with this verse because I, it makes perfect sense to me, but it also feels a bit impossible. Because I haven't been able to figure out how not to sin on my own. I'm still waiting for Jesus to finish that work in me. And when I read the scriptures, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be waiting until he returns, until that work is complete. So there's always going to be some measure of sin involved with who I am. And whenever I'm suffering, you know, part of it is going to be mixed up. This is why I say it's messy. Seasons of judgment and, and refinement are messy because there's all kinds of different things going on at the same time. Think about our, the church's history with race, for example. It says, don't suffer as, or, you know, as, as a thief. Well, what is, what is slavery, which the church participated in in significant ways, except thievery? And oftentimes it resulted in murder. And part of the refinement, part of the criticism that is just on the church right now is a result of that history, right? It's messy. It's really messy. 
And, and furthermore, it can't be that I, I never suffer, uh, that suffering will only apply if I'm, if I'm perfect because, you know, as I said, that's impossible. So here's what I think, here's what I think Peter is really saying. He's saying, let the, when he says, you know, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. He says, here, here's what I think he's saying. He says, let the prospect of judgment, first of all, induce you to godly living. It's healthy to have a sense of awe and reverence when we think about judgment, for example. It's healthy to have a sense of awe and reverence toward that. And let that, let that be a check in you when you're about to sin. And if that helps you not sin, then that's good. Not trying to say you're going to be perfect, but, if, but allow that sense of awe to be a check in your spirit. And then secondly, don't go around sinning and then say, woe is me, I'm being persecuted. It might be that, no, in that case, you're being called to repentance. See, it's messy. I find it interesting that throughout history, God has used the outside world to bring judgment at times on his people and refinement. It's, see, it's, it's only pride it's only pride that makes us think we are somehow above being criticized by the world around us. Do you remember how God raised up the Babylonians and the Assyrians, right? For, the, for his people in the Old Testament. So I think we gotta be really careful to have a humble posture when we're existing in a world that, in some ways is calling out things that need to be called out. And we need to be ready to repent. And then we need to be, we also need to be very careful to sort through the things that the world's calling out that are not aligned with scripture. And we don't need to, we don't need to, to be, like Peter, like in Peter's time, they were called about the emperor. They said, no, because that doesn't align with scripture. And so we need to be, we need to, we need to, it's going to take work it's a hard season, and it's going to take work for us to sort through all that and to know when we're being called to repentance and when we're being called to lift up our heads in, in, in acknowledgement of the truths of Scripture. It's messy, and that's okay, because God's refining the church. But this... Even though Assyria was raised up and Babylon was raised up, there was a time of judgment for those countries as well. And that's why we have this, this crazy verse, verse 18. It's a quote from Proverbs. So, you know, just about when you're about to say, you know, why does the judgment have to be on the household of God? Then Peter includes this verse. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So, to each in their time, right? And what's the application there? Go share the gospel with the people you love who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because this, is re this stuff is real. And our hearts should be breaking. So first, don't make the fiery trial worse with your own sin, and then... And then he goes on to tell us, this is what you ought to do. Here's what you ought to do. So here, here are the applications, and I'm going to kind of just rush through these um, 
There's so much good stuff in this text. Um, all right, jump in. All right, here's what you should do. Recognize, first of all, verse 12, that you are being tested. You are not being judged in the sense of condemnation. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not being condemned, but you're being swept up in this overall process of judgment that's taking place. And this is a test. Will you continue when every, all your circumstances look like they're going in the wrong direction and like God's not on the throne anymore, will you continue to trust in God? That's the test. We're already seeing this in the church in the West, which we could have predicted, but within the first six months of the pandemic, 20% of the people who had previously said that they were in church all the time were no longer going. So we are seeing, you know, an element of this, really of, to put it crassly, not passing the test. I love, one of my favorite verses is um, from Job 23.10. In the middle of all the stuff that Job is experiencing and just the suffering and the pain, he says, he says this, but he knows, God knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, that same word, some, some um, translations use the word test. When he has tried or tested me, I shall come out as gold. I shall come out as gold. That's what I want. That's what you want in your life because this has eternal implications. And I don't know what it is, the the pandemic and people not meeting together um, or this whole like movement of deconstruction that is sort of winding its way into our souls or it's just like sitting at home is is more comfortable, you know, or, or, or I don't like... I don't like to um, be online. I don't know what it is, but people are not passing the test. And I'm not saying the test is coming to church. I'm saying the test is remaining faithful, and it's messy for us to work that out. Totally fine if you're more comfortable at home right now and you're just not ready or you have health. That's not, that's not my point at all, so don't misunderstand me. Okay, that's not what I'm trying to say. But I am saying that things are happening And what's breaking my heart is to see people walking away from the faith. And what might help you not to do that is to understand that what's happening right now is exactly that test. Is your faith rooted in you will hang on to God even when circumstances are otherwise. Be a a Job 23.10 kind of person. I shall come out as gold. All right, that's recognize you're being tested. Second, rejoice. This is verse 13. Why? Because you're sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. You are partnering with Jesus. That's the greatest thing. You remember when we were studying in the book of Philippians? And we talked so much about partnership. Partnership vertically and horizontally. And here, Peter's bringing up that same idea. Partnership with Jesus. You know, so, joy is not the absence of suffering. This is what we pulled out of Philippians. Joy is not the absence of suffering. Joy is the presence of partnership, both vertically and horizontally with with people, with God and with people. And if you have partnership with God, if you have partnership with others, then you can be in the most difficult circumstances and still have joy. That's what Peter is saying. 
rejoice. We call this, what, like fire-forged friendship. We should, have a, we, should have a, we should have a saying, you know? We've got fire-forged friendships around here because we've been through it together. Fire-forged friendships. More than that, rejoice because it says the spirit, this is verse 14, the spirit of the glory, this is like a whole sermon unto itself. The spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you when you are enduring a fiery trial. You've seen, or like Stephen in the book of Acts, you know, when he's, he's getting pelted with stones and he looks up and sees the glory. There's something about going through a fiery trial that connects us with the spirit of God, with the glory of God. I have a hard time talking about the glory, but I've been really thankful to those of you in the younger generation who have this word that's really come onto my radar, vibe. Because I feel like my generation, we didn't have a concept for that. But you're really helping me. And I would just say that glory is actually a type of vibe. Does that help you understand what glory is? It's the very, very, very best vibe that there could ever be. That's what glory is. So, one of you should write a poem or a a song or something on the vibe of glory and then share it with us. You want the glory vibe. That's what you want. And it comes on you when you're in the fiery trial. All right. Don't be ashamed. Verse 16. This is so good. Most of us feel shame whenever someone critiques us or judges us or harms us. I admit to feeling that oftentimes. Um, And we often don't discern whether or not, you know, they're doing it because we've done something wrong or because of some totally other reason. We don't, we don't often make that distinction. We just feel the shame, whether we ought to or not. And this, is, this dynamic is oftentimes why, victi- why victims of abuse feel shame, even though they didn't do anything wrong. It's part of the human tendency to feel that shame. And when there's persecution, when there's a fiery trial, that happens as well. And Peter says, you know, be ready. This dynamic happens when you're under pressure or, or judgment, and don't give in to shame. He says, he says, spend your energy instead on glorifying God. That's what the text says. That's to say, instead of feeling shame, worship. What an interesting thing to say. Instead of feeling shame, worship. And isn't that true about worship? That it has this incredible, that's why I love to come on Sundays, you know, or if I'm at home, worship. This is why I love this, because worship has the power to sort of cast out so much of the, the, the brokenness and the suffering and the pain and the sin and the shame and everything, it just, it has this ability to overtake your soul. Worship does. And kind of reframe everything. And so worshiping is, a, is an incredible gift that we have. Worship has this amazing power to crowd out all the sinful, destructive thoughts that invade our minds. So don't give in to shame, worship. And then lastly, it says, entrust your soul to God. Recognize that you're being tested. Rejoice. Don't be ashamed. Entrust your soul to God. God is sovereign, verse 19. Therefore, let those who, those who suffer according to God's will. That's what that means, that God is sovereign. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator. God is faithful creator. He's sovereign. He's faithful creator. And then if we go back up to verse 12, the very first word in this passage, beloved 
Hope you didn't skip over that. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Beloved. So combine all those together. God loves you. Okay? He's in control. And he will, he's faithful, so he'll do something about it. That's a powerful combination. He can do something about it, and he has the will to do something about it. And so this word entrust in the Greek is like a word where, you know, you would give something to somebody else for safekeeping. And so this is, the, this is what it's saying. It's saying, you, believer, whoever you are, give your soul over to God. And he will lock it away in a safe place. Just entrust yourself to God because he's faithful and he's creator. And, and when we grasp these things, we will, if, if, if everything that Peter says here gets, well, you know, pressed deeply into our souls, what's going to happen is that we will be steadfast. We will be steadfast in this coming season. And God will be glorified. And the gospel will continue to go forward through us, this community. And that's what I hope and pray for. In Jesus' name, amen.